Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Before we get going, I want to tell you that this week's episode is brought to you by Kindle. Great spellers come from great readers, and that's why Kindle is the proud presenting sponsor of this Thursday's 2017 Scripps National Spelling Bee. With one Kindle, you can hold thousands of books, which ensures a young reader always has a book with them. You don't have to drag them to the library like I did my mother. To learn more ways about how Kindle can inspire a child's emerging love of reading, visit Amazon.com slash Kindle for Kids. And make sure to tune into the Scripps National Spelling Bee presented by Kindle this Thursday, June 1st at 8 p.m. on ESPN. I love that this is on ESPN. Thank you, Kindle. The show is also brought to you by To You and their new podcast, The Front Row, a show about what it takes to solve the problems of the future. To You partners with great universities to build digital education programs like MBA at Syracuse and cybersecurity at Berkeley. To learn more and subscribe, visit toyou.com slash longform. That's the number two, the letter U, dot com slash longform. Thank you, To You. Check out The Front Row wherever you get podcasts. Also sponsoring the show this week, it's another podcast. It's called Outside the Box. If you're a maker, a doer, an innovator, or even just a consumer who wants to get a peek behind the curtain of some of the world's greatest organizations, you got to check it out. The first episode features conversations with presidents and CEOs from organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, Feeding America, and more. You can expect new episodes to cover corporate culture, inventive approaches to business, and you'll get insight from some of the brightest minds in the nation. So subscribe now. Outside the box, it's in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, where you listen to podcasts. They've got it. Again, Outside the Box, thanks for sponsoring the show. And here is that show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Max. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Hey, you got that book signed. Uh, no, I did not. Oh, that's not. Oh, sorry. That's the cover. <laughs> that's just the cover, cover has Ariel Levy's signature on it. Sometimes they do covers where it looks like penmanship, but actually it's not. It's I'm, just printed I'm on there. easily fooled by a hologram optical illusion. Aaron, I don't know if you know, but when someone does sign a book, they usually don't sign it directly on the cover. They would do it like on the inside. I'm learning so much about the literary world from you guys. 
Max, uh, who's on the show this week? <laughs> Ariel Levy is on the show. Yeah. Uh, Ariel Levy, a staff writer at The New Yorker. She has been on once before, and she has a new book out, which has her name on the cover. Uh, I can tell by looking at it that it's a memoir. <laughs> it is. It's a memoir. It's called The Rules Do Not Apply, and it's good, and we talked about it. She was on the show a couple years ago, and uh, she's, I, she's I one of her, her best guests we've ever had. Yeah, she's one of the best guests we've ever had, and I made her promise that when she wrote a book, uh, she'd come back on, and she did. Looking forward to this one. Me too. We are brought to you by MailChimp. They make it easy to maintain an email newsletter. And uh, I just like to say in this uh, this world of changing times, things coming and going, I uh, appreciate the rock solidness of MailChimp. I always rely on them, and I'm never never worried that my emails are not arriving. Good people at MailChimp. They are. Good people. Good no company. joke. And now here's Max with Ariel Levy. Hi, Ariel. Hi, Max. Uh, it's been a long time since we since we previously talked. Like a, two years? Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. a little bit more than that. Yeah. And I made you promise that uh, you would come back and talk to me when you wrote a book. Here I am. Yeah. Then you wrote a book in like March, but now it's like uh, May, almost June. Oh, big deal. What's the difference? There's well, it's, uh, the difference is like a couple months. Oh, who cares? So I would, if we had talked when your book actually came out, I would have asked you some questions about like. Uh, that moment, but now I feel like we're in a slightly different moment. I mean, very slightly. It's only <laughs> it just came out a minute ago. Well, you've done a ton of these interviews, so I guess my my question is um, how you're feeling like in in like the life cycle of your book tour at this point. Well, this is you're my friend. Like you're, <laughs> I'm. This is fun. Okay. If you were not my friend, I it would not be fun because I've. You're right. I am like it's enough. Yeah, you're taxed. It's enough now. Okay. Like. Great. <laughs> no, but we can that don't be ridiculous. Don't see you're being an idiot already. Aren't you? Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. All right. Maybe a little bit. Uh how's it been? How's the book tour been? It's been good. Um I'll tell you what's I'll tell you the good part. The good part is that women, as you can imagine, come to talk to me about their miscarriages and you know, old ladies come to tell me. And that's cool. Like, that's actually really cool when, like, an 80-year-old woman comes and is like, this was an isolating and profound part of my youth that I couldn't talk to anyone about. I couldn't talk to my husband about it. I didn't tell my friends about it. And it's a comfort to hear a woman speaking about it publicly. So when they come to talk to me, that is cool. I mean, that is, like, an honor. That does feel good. I like that. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. You also have like a thing for- uh, I do like old ladies. You do like old ladies. Yeah, I do. You're absolutely right. I mean, look, it's also, it's not the fun part, but it is the good part. The good part. That at these events, I will often see not an old lady, like a young woman, a woman of childbearing age, where I, I can just tell when I look at her, I'm like, oh boy, you it just happened. You can just tell. They look blown apart. Like, I'm never wrong when I see them at these events. I'm like that woman's gonna come up after the event and tell me she just lost a baby, and they do. Are Very you? Are you? Are you like? Are you open for that? Yes. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. I'm up for that. Where do you get all that? Uh, where do you get all that space from? Like just to absorb that. I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't take anything out of me to say to someone, "I'm so sorry. It'll get better. It's not always gonna feel the way it feels right now." I mean, I just know where they're at. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact it's going to get better. It's not, oh, it's going to be fine because it's not fine. It's never fine. But it's going to get so much better. You're not always going to feel when you wake up every morning like 
this is not acceptable. I cannot possibly bear this. Like, and they look like that. They look like they just have no idea it's going to get better because partly they've just lost their babies. And also partly they are dealing with the hormonal physical experience, the massive. I mean, think about when your wife had just given birth. Like, I'm sure the chemical hormonal experience of that is so oceanically intense. But if the baby lives, you have this person to keep alive and that distracts you. So you can't like just, you know, wallow in this like sea of what's the word? I mean, it's just it's just a chemical shit show always giving birth hormonally and physically. But if you get a baby out of it who lives, then you, you know, there's a prize at the end. If the baby dies... It's not good. It's not so good. Is there something like cathartic for you about having these conversations? Well, I think it's um makes me feel like there's some value to my experience if I can provide comfort to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I wouldn't I wouldn't call it cathartic. What would you call it? It makes me feel that I can be of value, that I can be of service, which makes me that pleases me, you know? <laughs> Like, I mean, that's that's a good feeling to yeah. feel like you can do something productive with your pain that might, you know, be of comfort to someone else. Like, that's nice. That's a nice feeling. What about the non-reader book tour part of this? Like, what about just having this conversation about... Uh... Well, it all depends. Like, this is nice because I like you. If it's with someone I dislike, then it's very unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. You know? I've One of the things I've been thinking about as I read your book and then saw you do like all of these interviews before you talked to me was whether because your book is so personal, Uh whether the like shitty parts of the book tour were even shittier. I I think probably, yeah. Like, sure. There are times when I'm like, God, I wish I wrote a cookbook. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like where it'd be, I'm just like more in the mood to talk about bruschetta, but you know, I didn't. Yeah, it's it's intense talking about all this stuff all the time, particularly if you end up talking to people who you dislike. Not that that it, not that that's happened much, but it right. has happened that like I've had the occasional interviewer where I'm like, "This is insane! Like these questions are insane." What's an insane question? Just so I could like avoid the uh, minefield. The most insane one was there was this interview in San Francisco who just kept asking me over and over again. I'm not exaggerating. It must have asked me like five times. In the space of I have 15 minutes, like, do you still long for motherhood? And finally, and I kept saying, yes, I do. And finally, he asked me for like the fifth time. And I was like, do you have a baby here to give me? Is that because that's the only thing I can think of why you would keep asking me that? Is there a gift bag with a human baby in it for me? And you're trying to figure out if I'll take it because the answer is yes, I will. And if you don't have a baby in a gift bag for me then stop asking me (laughs) if I long for motherhood. Yes, already. Shut it. That was insanity. That, that was, that was great. That one was really, I was like, this is, is this, am I on candid camera? Like, that was weird. Hold on. I'm just going to cross this question off my list of questions real quick. Uh Uh-huh. When did you finish writing the book? I think September, this past September. September 2016. Yeah. I think that's true. Like the last round of changes. Yeah. What's that period like between September and March? Like... Oh, the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because you're done. Because you finish something. So when people are like, how's your book coming? You can be like, it's done. Fucking done. It's done. <laughs> that's how it's going. <laughs> Finished. But then 
you also don't have to do anything about it. You're in a state of suspended animation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the best ever. Because there's like nothing left to do. Uh-huh. That's like the equivalent of like at the New Yorker, like when a story goes to press, there's like three days, you know, it goes to press Thursday night and then it hits stands Monday. And that's like the only real weekend ever. That's like the only <laughs> time I can ever really relax when I don't have to worry like, I don't have to find another story yet. I don't have to deal with a damn thing. That's the only true weekend is right after. Do you get like nervous in those periods? No, I'm so happy. You're just psyched. I'm so happy during those periods. Oh my god! Oh man, my experience of those—I—I I, not in the New Yorker or book version, but my experience of those periods is is very different. It's like uh, extreme. I fucked that up. Anxiety. Well, I mean, right before the book came out, I was anxious. Like you have to realize with books, there's a while. Like you finish September, it doesn't come out till March. I think that that's where my like leading question was going. Is like. The book is so contemporary, like it's about something like this period in your life that just happened. And well, it just happened almost five years ago, right? So for me, right? I mean, yeah, that's relatively recent, but five years is a f- is enough time for. So it wasn't like there was anything about your perspective on that time that was going to change. I guess that's what I was wondering about, like whether the process of writing and finishing the book would make you think any differently about the time that's in the book. No, I don't think so. I think I kind of knew what I was going to say before I said it. I mean, I didn't know exactly how it was going to shake out, mm-hmm. but I knew what I was going to do with the experience. On You know what I mean? Like I had a plan mm-hmm. for what I was going to write. Did it change at all as you were writing it? Not a ton. I mean, sure, things changed. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I wrote parts and then cut them and rewrote them. Da, 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 da. But the general way it felt and the point and the kind of arc. Yeah. No, that's this is what I planned. Is that clarity because you had done so much work processing it before you sat down to write it? Like, I, I guess my assumption, which was wrong, is that when you're writing about yourself in that way, you come to learn things about yourself as you're writing it. Maybe somewhat, but I mean, I think that I wouldn't have put myself in the position to be like, I guess I'm going to write a book about myself and my experience. We'll just see what happens. Do you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't put myself in that position because what if you couldn't come up with something good? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I'm going to actually write about private things, frankly, if I'm going to write about anything, I know what it is to write a book. I, You know, I did it once before. Mm-hmm. I have a I have a sense of what is required. I wouldn't put myself in the position of signing a book contract and being like, yes, I will deliver this to you unless I was confident that I could deliver. And in order for me to be confident that I can deliver, I have to have some sense of what the arc is, like what's the point, what's the story, what am I saying? And I, I mean, with articles too, I try not to take assignments unless I have, unless I can see in my head more or less what it is I'm going to say. Sure, you learn things about someone when you're reporting that like affect it, but like I always have some kind of feel for what I'm going to do with the material. What would you say is the point of the book? The point of the book is that everybody doesn't get everything. You know, as my dad said, like another title of the book could have been Tough Shit. (laughs) You know, the point is that everybody doesn't get everything and that's okay. That like the set of skills that has served me as a writer, which is to say 
you know, having a certain amount of authorial control, like what I just described, and also having a whatever you want to call it, a penchant or a habit or, you know, a skill for analyzing and then presenting my analysis in a way that's persuasive to readers, though that skill set is good on the page, it doesn't really work in life where you don't have control. And analyzing the hell out of, you know, why did I do this? Why did I do that? How'd this happen? Isn't really as valuable as just trying to be present. I mean, I know it sounds a bit dreamcatchery, but, well, you know, me. I tried to make it less dreamcatchery in the book and more of like a good story. <laughs> so, But in, in truth, it's actually pretty dreamcatchery. A little, yeah. You, the, the message is surrender. The message is like, you get what you get and you have to find a way to be grateful for that or you're effed. I mean, the book is basically what? The story of eight, 18 months? Not really. I mean, it goes back to my childhood. Right. I mean, I guess like... Um, and then it goes to when I met my former spouse. So that would have been... Uh, I don't, I'm not good with dates. I think it's 2003. 2003, right? So it goes... It, no, I didn't actually mean like the whole chronology of the book. I'm sorry. There's like an 18-month period where the things in your life that uh, were that Everything goes bananas. Yeah. Like you lost your house, marriage, and child. And well, that happens in about a month and a half. Uh-huh. Not 18 weeks. Like four or five weeks. Okay. All that went kaplooey. Before all that went kaplooey. Yeah. This thing you're talking about where you feel like you have control. Uh-huh. How connected was that control to your writing or at least those skills that you're talking about that like serve you in the writing? Being able to like take a step back, analyze things, frame them, tell a story about what you're seeing. How connected is is how control you like how in control you felt to the work that you do? It's impossible for me to say because I've never done anything else with my time. You know what I mean? I've only ever been a writer. I've never had any other kind of vocation or evocation. I mean, this has always been what I did with myself. So it's kind of impossible for me to give you a truthful answer. Like, mm -hmm. I think I think inextricably. I mean, I think that I've been working on being a person and being a writer for pretty well the same amount of time. Like I was working on being a person for maybe like seven years <laughs> before I started working on writing. I don't I don't remember. Yeah. So how does how is the um if the two are inextricably linked uh -huh. before Kaplui, how how has uh post Kaplui affected your writing? I don't know that it has because everything applies still for writing. Like I still I none of I wasn't wrong <laughs> about how you report and write. So I didn't have to change those things. I had to change my approach, my understanding of life and my understanding of control and my understanding of like the extent to which it's necessary to just accept things. Like, you know, we were talking earlier about the radio host in San Francisco who just kept saying, do you yearn for motherhood? Well, yeah, I do. But I can't have it biologically. I mean, I people always say, well, you can adopt. And yes, I, I could and I may, but it's a very complicated, expensive process with lots of potential for pitfalls and disappointment. I'm just not ready to face another process like that. You know, if, if once you go through years of trying to get your body to do it, it just doesn't sound that attractive to be like, let's take it from the top. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's run it back. Let's just start this over again. Let's set the clock back to zero. And, you know, let's just start spending money and time and getting disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and getting your heart broken and come this close to being a mother and then it gets yanked away. Let's do that. 
Sounds great. Sounds great. I'm up for it. Like, I'm not actually up for it. I'm exhausted and I don't want to get my heart broken anymore. I want to, I want to enjoy my life. I want to be present in my life and have it be like exactly because the, the experience of trying to get pregnant. I mean, I think if you were just shagging your partner, it might be kind of fun. But if you start to involve the reproductive industrial complex, it's not fun. It's like it's it's your whole life. It's like you're you're constantly looking at a calendar being like, well, I can't go away then because that's when the egg is on for all this shit. It's just no way to live. And then when it never works, this nurse once asked me at the IVF, what's the worst thing about IVF? I was like, that it doesn't work <laughs> is the worst part, that I never, ever get a baby ever is the worst part. Any hoskies, my point is that like, that's something I've had to accept and analyzing it is not useful. Thinking, if only I'd done this when I was younger, you know, if only, you know, should I, well, how could game, thinking this through, thinking why did, why did this happen? How can I make it not the case is not productive. The only thing that's good is to surrender and be like, I'm just going to try to be grateful for my life the way it is and enjoy it. And it works. Like, I am enjoying my life. So when this dude is like, do you yearn for motherhood? Sure. But I have a lot else that I enjoy. So except when someone's asking it to me over and over and over in a heartless, monstrous, cruel. I yearn for you to shut the fuck yeah, up. Yeah, assault on my humanity. Like, I'm capable of enjoying my life because there are a lot of other things I yearn for that I got. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for a second tell you about a new uh, podcast that you should be listening to. It's called Fan Club, and it's all about why we love what we love. It is about the nature of fandom in this exact moment and uh, also where it's going. The way that we consume culture is obviously changing at light speed, and this show is all about that change. It's trying to figure out how we are going to interact with the things that we love in the future. It's uh, produced by Viacom. You know Viacom, MTV, Comedy Central, BET, Nickelodeon, Paramount. And it's hosted by this guy named Ross Martin, who has maybe thought about fandom more than anyone on planet Earth. He's one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. He's a three-time Emmy winner. He's been at Viacom for a long time thinking about how fandom works. And on the show, he goes out and talks to some of the smartest people around about how they do their work and how their work is being consumed. This week on the show, he's talking to Chef Tom Colicchio about how technology has transformed the way we eat. You can listen to Fan Club right now by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Go check it out. I think you're going to like it. What did it take for you to get there? Like, what did it take? Time and suffering and, you know, the same, the same skill set I developed to accept that my son was dead, my spouse was an alcoholic, and my house was no longer my house. Like, losing all that in whatever that was, like, I, you know, five weeks, six weeks, a very short period of time, less than two months for sure. Losing all that and then, like, waking up every day and being like, no. I, like I told you, like, these women I see at events who look really blown apart and I can tell they've just miscarried or had a stillbirth or something like that. I know what they're experiencing. You wake up and you're like, uh-uh, I, I, I can't. This I can't have this. Like, no, this is not acceptable. Until eventually you realize you can accept it or not. This is reality. And learning to do that and to just be like, okay, 
was a good preparation for <laughs> for infertility, which also requires you to be like, okay, it feels like I should be entitled to this because I've had a period once a month for 25 years. Put in my time. I've put in my mother effing time, but I guess it's not to be. I said to my dad the other day, because I've been thinking about like, one of the things I talk about with this book is like, I like that it sort of breaks a certain taboo and like admits that like women are human female animals and that like there's a lot of primal animal stuff in this book and it's, you know, stuff that isn't largely talked about. Anyway, my dad and I were talking about this. What are you talking about when you say that? Well, like, for example, this. I said to my dad the other day, I was like, okay, imagine if blood came flowing out of your penis for days on end every month for 25 years. He was like, I would not like that. I was like, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> That's being a woman. That's what it is. <laughs> that and, and squeezing babies out your body who die sometimes and all this stuff. It's, a, it's, it's, it's harsh. It's a harsh toke. I mean, we get a magic power. We can make people. It's amazing. But you pay. You pay for it. Man, do you pay? I interrupted you. No, you didn't. Yeah, you were talking about um, what it took to get to that point. You know, I just suffered through it. I mean, I just suffered. Just a shortcut. It's just time. Time and agony and then a willingness to be like, I'm going to stop fighting this. I'm going to surrender to this reality. I'm going to stop saying this is unacceptable. I'm going to stop trying to figure out why. I'm just going to accept it. I'm just going to live with it and think, what do I have? What have I not lost? What do I get? You know? And in my case, plenty. What role did writing play in that process? Like a lot. I mean, first of all, in a in a very practical way, like when I got back from Mongolia, which you know, if you're if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book or whatever, the genesis of this was an essay I wrote for the New Yorker called Thanksgiving in Mongolia that was about a reporting trip I did when I was five months pregnant and I went into labor in my hotel room in Mongolia and gave birth and was somebody's mother for 10 minutes and then he died. When I got back from Mongolia, I had an actual identity crisis. I mean, I think we probably talked about this last time. Like I was like a switch had flipped and I had experienced maternal love and I felt on a very primal animal level like a mother and milk was coming out of my boobies to feed this baby who wasn't there. So the switch had flipped in my body too. So that's a little bit of an identity crisis, right? Like to the world, you don't, you're not a mother, you have no kid, but in your guts, you feel like a mother. That's a bad, that's a bad thing. So what I had, and also my spouse then was gone two weeks later to rehab and that was the beginning of the end of that. So I was no longer a wife and mother. So what was intact, what I did have was my identity as a writer. So I wrote my guts out that year. I mean, partly because working was like so much more fun than just being me. Like it was so much more fun to go report on like a rape in Steubenville, Ohio, than to just like be me. Sorry, but it's true. So I just worked really hard that year. Like that year was, I did this story about Steubenville. I did a story about Edie Windsor. I did a story about Diana Nyad. I wrote Thanksgiving in Mongolia. Like I was a busy bee. Oh God. And I heard this stupid story about exotic cat breeders. Yeah. When I first got back, everyone at the New Yorker was like, give her something gentle. Like, we don't want cracker. <laughs> like, you know, she's been through a lot. Give her something easy. But actually, it was hard because if something's too easy, it's hard because there's like no there there. 
And also, you can't quite like escape into it. I mean, I could escape into. I'm into cats, so I was into that. But the problem is, it just was a dumb story. <laughs> so then it's like very hard to make a dumb story Smart. publishable, yeah. or readable, or like worth anyone's time. So what I'm hearing you say is that writing was really useful in that time because it was like an escape from this other. Well, it's also what I still had, right? It was like. I'm not a mother. I'm not a wife. What am I still? Like, what didn't just fall down the tubes? Well, being a writer, this thing I'd been working on for 20 years, like, I still had that as, like, an identity that was stable. I feel like maybe I'm, like, asking the same question over and over again, and this can be the last time, and you can just tell me to stop asking it. But, like, I guess what I'm wondering is whether you were able to surrender, in your words, in part because you were able to, like, process what had happened through writing i don't know I, I i don't know because i have no um what's it called in an experiment i have no control group right i have no idea what it would have been like to go through these experiences and not write about it nor do i know what it would be like to go through anything and not write about it because i've been writing about everything that happened to me for as long as i could write so do you know what i mean like it's like i don't know <laughs> what it would be like to live this life and not write things hmm. I think what you're really asking is like, do I find writing therapeutic? And the answer is, like I said to you earlier, I had a professional agenda when I was doing this book. Like I knew I had enough experience to know what a story needs, what a book requires in order to work. Yeah. I mean, I guess like in a way we're talking about the same thing that we talked about years ago. Yeah. And I am asking, is writing therapeutic? Yeah. And and what you're saying essentially is like, this was like... It was a good story, so I wrote it. Well, not only. I mean, A, yes. Like, yeah, if I had heard this story about someone else, I would have wanted to tell it because a lot of the issues I've been writing about for two decades were at stake. Like, what does it mean to be a woman? And the fundamental human conflict between the desire for adventure and novelty and freedom on the one hand and domesticity and security and intimacy on the other. I mean, those are all things that interest me. So it was good stuff for me to write about. You know, was it also like, attractive to me to have like what was going on the page and what I was thinking about all the time in my head match up. Yes. Yeah. What, what do you mean? What was attractive? Well, I mean, I, you know, you lose your marriage, you lose your son, you know, you lose a whole life that you built. You're going to think about that a lot. Like that's not something that you just wake up and stop thinking about. So to be like, okay, after that initial year of being like, I'm going to focus on everybody else's story and just get through and be a writer. Yeah, it was attractive to me to be like, no, I'm actually going to think about this stuff that's been bubbling away in me about me. Do you remember when that changed? Probably about a year, you know, like around the time I published Thanksgiving in Mongolia. Did publishing it change it or was it totally like internal in your own path? I think, I mean, I think, you know, like, Jews like unveil the gravestone. There's like an unveiling ceremony a year after the person dies. And I think Jews have that right. I think a year is about the amount of time it takes to get through that in initial all-encompassing raw period of grief where you're like living in a tunnel of grief and you're just in an altered state. I'm interested in that moment. Like I'm interested from, was a, it? from a writing perspective. It wasn't like a moment, you know, it wasn't like you know how things are like they're gradual and happen in bits mm -hmm. but looking back yeah. i would say it was about a year of 
really brutal full-time grieving. And then another year of like still kind of grieving. And then a third year of like being in a halfway house between grief life and regular life. And then the fourth year got kind of normal. And then it's always like I'll always have a little spot in my heart, you know, for that baby and for my first marriage. And like, you know, under the, exactly the right circumstances, I could get sad about either at any time. But without aggravating circumstances, for the most part, I'm back in the regular world. Is publishing a book about them aggravating circumstances? <sighs> at first, talking about the book was really jarring and painful and like, oh my God, this again. But I'm more used to it now. I feel like the thing that I'm trying to yeah, what are you getting at? I'm trying to figure it out. What do you want to know, boy? I, I want to know how it didn't wreck you. That's what I want the to know. The experience or the book or? The experience. Well, think about what people go through. I mean, this is not that bad of a sh roll of the dice compared to what people all over the world are suffering through all the time. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's not an answer about you. Well, what was the alternative, you know, to just roll over and just be like, now I'm going to have a very, very sad, awful life? That's That would be a waste of a lot of luck. Do you know what I mean? Like, I get to do the thing I always wanted to do for a living at a magazine I consider to be the best, frankly, you know, and I love my editor there. I work with this guy, Nick Troutwine, who's like, we have a lot of fun. He's my friend. We enjoy ourselves. You know, I get to write about stuff that really interests me. So that's super cool. I always wanted to do this for a living and I get to. And like, I love someone who loves me. Like, that's neat. That's fun. That feels good. You know, all those things are wonderful, fortunate things. And right now, I was about to say I have my health, which is like funny for a person who's sneezing and who's like, I need a tissue to say, but usually I have my health. And that's that's a big deal, you know? Like when you have a medical drama like a placental abruption followed by, you know, it's like, oh, it's just like kind of a wake-up call. Like I happen to be having a medical drama around fertility. What if I was having a medical drama around living? I mean, I would always think that with IVF when people were like, this is the worst. It's like, well, it sucks, but it's not the worst. The worst that happens is you walk out of here healthy. Like, you don't have a baby, you're not pregnant, right, but the, like- The worst is at a different doctor's office. Yeah. You're not in the doctor's office where it's the worst. The worst is horrible, horrible diseases that give you a slow, painful death. And I didn't get that yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's another book later. So it was the good things in your life that allowed you to get through it. Yeah. I mean, they're really good things, you know? Like, those are all really good things. It's not a bad- life like it's good life that's the thing about this book like it's not supposed to be a cautionary tale it's it's not supposed to be like i don't even what would the cautionary tale in this well book there have been a lot of write-ups that are like that imagine that what i'm saying is like that the point is have children younger women like that it's a wake-up call to women that like oh. feminism said you can have it all but you can't get pregnant earlier first of all feminism didn't say you can have it all feminism said as a woman you're a full human being and the human condition is that everybody doesn't get everything. So feminism was never telling you you could have everything. I don't know where people got that idea. And second of all, this is this is not a cautionary tale because for a cautionary tale, it would have to be like, 
careful or you could end up like me. But I think it's great being me. I like being, you know what I mean? Like I like my life a lot and I don't wish I had a different life. I wish my kid had lived. I wish he was four. Like that'd be great. But that's not a choice that's available to me. Did it feel like whatever happened after a year, did it feel like that was a choice that was available to you? What the hell did you just say? <laughs> I'm going to say what? I, I don't know. I, I'm I, I'm just not sure that I'm I'm aware enough of what I'm trying to ask you. I feel like we're just like uh, Max, repeating that history. Max, I cannot help you with. I know. I, know. I, I would if I could. I know. I mean, I'm just, I, I guess I'm still trying to understand what happened after a year. That's what I'm trying to understand. Well, after a year, I was just a little bit less anguished. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you start getting back into your normal routines in life, which I'd are... I'd already gotten into my normal routines. I'd already gotten back to, like, living my life, you know. I just cried a lot of the time. And after a year, I cried a bit less. And then after another year, I cried less. And then after, like, the third year, I went back to not being a professional crier. <laughs> You know, do you want to write about different things now than you used to? I'm a little sick of gender. Like I kind of don't want to do any more gender stories. I am, I would say, more interested in death. I might do this story about composting human bodies, like that as an option for what to do with your dead body hmm. is be composted. Like I'm, I'm is definitely like new thing? newish. I mean, you know, they've perfected it with livestock, but they've been reluctant to. You know, it's it. People are freaky about it, but when you think about it, it's like think about how many dead people we make in this country. Tons, endless, infinity symbol. <laughs> they have to go somewhere, you know. And what we do with them is like fill them with poison and put them in the ground in like a poison box that looks like it comes from like Trump Casino. That's bad. That's bad for the environment. We can't do that. And I always thought cremation was like the answer. It's not. Yeah, also bad. Also bad. It yeah. takes a lot of resources to cremate people. It's bad. We got to figure out what to do with the dead. And I'm really, really into gardening. So the compost idea sings to me, frankly. <laughs> Combines two of your interests in gardening and death. That's exactly right. <laughs> it is. It's exactly the truth. Not just gardening and death. Compost. And I'm really into compost. Do you make your own compost? John, my my gentleman friend, built these huge compost things. And it's like, a, a, it's, mo, it's what we talk about most of the time. <laughs> it's composting? Yes. <laughs> I'm not saying we're cool. <laughs> you know who it is. It's the dude from the book. It's the doctor. Yeah. That's yeah. Your, that's like, your gentleman friend now. Yeah. That's a nice thing. Like, that's a weird thing that, like, you meet someone in an emergency room in Mongolia, and then, like, five years later, you're like, getting married to that person like that's cool uh wait you are married or you're getting married we're getting married congratulations oh thanks thank you i feel like we're talking about this too casually can you explain who this person is to you for people who uh, have not read the book he was the doctor who took care of me in the emergency room in mongolia in this clinic in mongolia so we met and then you know i went back to new york and then we i he had to send me my um medical report for health insurance and i said while I have this person on the email who was there for it, you know, who was there in the hospital when I came in. In a way, kind of like the the only other person The only who person was there. who, the only person, yeah. I mean, I was the only person who saw the baby alive, but he was the only other person who saw the baby, period. Any skis, when he wrote me, I was like, hey, is it normal that I'm lactating? Because 
I didn't know. I didn't know if that was like bad. And also, I could, believe it or not, I couldn't reach my doctor on the phone. Like, health insurance is such a shit show, truly, that like this obgyne who I, you know, who was like a perfectly good obgyne was in such a frenzy all the time that he just didn't even call me back when I got back and called the office. So anyway, when I had this other emergency room doctor from Mongolia, he's not from Mongolia, he's from South Africa, but this guy who I had encountered in Mongolia, when I had him on the email and I was like, while I've got you, what do I do about this lactation thing? Is that okay? And he said, the milk letdown reflex after miscarriage is one of nature's less kind tricks. And I just thought that was such a elegant and apt way to put it. I just dug that. Anyway, and then we started writing to each other. And um, we just sort of became pen pals. And then we started visiting. Then we fell in love. And that's what happened. Did you talk about Mongolia? Sure. But not as much as you would think. Not a ton. I mean, we talked about Mongolia, the country, and his life there. We didn't talk about like... Yeah, that's what I was asking. The night. No. And we don't. It's not doesn't come up much, you know. No, like I, I said, I don't. We, I, don't I don't know what that's right. like. <laughs> the thing that you're talking about, I don't know. <laughs> right, that's I, fair. I don't know what it's like to uh, fall in <laughs> love halfway across the world with uh, the doctor who is the only person uh, to, ever, <laughs> to ever see your son. I don't, I don't know. What no, that's like. you don't know what that's like. No, can you tell me what that's like? It's cool. I mean. I just think John's really great. Like, he's just really fun and great and weird and interesting. And, like, you know, he's had a really crazy life. Like, this is a guy who was born in Rhodesia, which no longer exists for lots of good reasons, who was raised by a colonialist father. You know, I mean, fought in the Bush War. Like, he has had the craziest life. His brother died when he was 20 in a motorcycle accident. His mom died when he was three. He goes to South Africa and, like becomes an emergency room doctor there in the midst of all this gang war. Like, I was, he just a fascinating person. He just, it's like, you know, when we talk, I'm just like, whoa, it's just interesting, this stuff that he's experienced. And the, the other thing that's fun is that, like, to him, he's like, oh, a Jewish girl from New York, how exotic. I'm like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> We're not a dime a dozen, you're right. <laughs> I wonder. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How significant it is that you've decided to make your life with this person who saw this, who witnessed this moment. I know. It's really, so, I mean. I feel like your answer is kind of like, no, man, he's just cool. He's a cool dude. No, 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 no. I mean, he is just cool, but I think it's hugely significant. If the question, though, is if you say how much of our connection is about having had this experience to get, you know, that he was there for this experience, which is definitely the most intense experience of my life, the most painful and the most transcendent. How much of our relationship is about that and how much is it like if we had met at a party and God knows where? I don't know where else you'd meet this guy. You know, would we would we have just connect? I mean, there's no way for me to know. It's not that I think it's insignificant. It's just that I have absolutely no idea because I've only ever met him this one way. So I have, again, no ba basis for comparison. That's just the truth. I think maybe I've stumbled upon the thing that I've, I've actually been trying to ask you about. Oh, go ahead. Like there are all these privileges in my life. One of them, maybe the most significant, is like nothing like the three things that happened to you in the span of five weeks have ha has ever happened to me. Uh huh. And I think part of what I've been trying to figure out is because 
that has not happened to me. Uh-huh. I don't have any feel for how you come back from those things. Uh-huh. So that's what I've been asking about or trying to ask about with like the role that writing played in that for you. And I think your answer is just like, I don't know, that's me. I just write about things. And I'm also interested in in John uh-huh. and how like... Uh, I think... Uh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. One of the things, and then we'll go back to what you're thinking, but one of the things we connected about was loss and how you get through it. He had lost a lot when I met him. It was significant to me that his brother, his mother, his country no longer existed and that he had gotten through that. Anyway, as you were. I'm trying to, I, I don't know how uh, how you come back from loss like that. That's what I've been trying to ask you about. I am in no way comparing myself to this person. This is just something I read that interests me. The psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, which is why I am in no way comparing myself, but the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor and writer Viktor Frankl wrote, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And that's what I think. I think that loss, grief, it's an opportunity for transformation, you know? I mean, like when you say a privilege you have is that you haven't experienced these things I've experienced. You know, losing my marriage is purely just a sad thing and I'm just sad about it. It's like there's no upside. But the baby, I don't envy you that you haven't experienced that. There's nothing I would trade that experience for. That was the most transformative experience in my life. That was the most transcendent experience in my life. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't think it's a, I think it's a privilege that I've experienced it. I don't think it's a privilege that you haven't, to be honest with you. I'm not saying I wouldn't trade. Like, your kid's alive. I definitely, if, if they were like, would you rather have your baby be alive? I'd be like, uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> Vastly. But given that I don't, that's not on the table, if the choice were, would you rather have had this experience or not? I'd rather have had it. I think I can hear that. Again, if there's a baby in a gift bag, I will take it. <laughs> Let there be no. <laughs> Just so I'm clear, you yearn for motherhood. If there's a baby, <laughs> if there's a store, if someone starts a store with gift bags that have babies in them, I will be the first one at the door. Do you understand what I'm asking, though? Of course. Uh, but I do want to push you a little bit to hear a little bit more about what role like being with the person who was with you in that moment means like whether I just don't know I mean I I like that fact like I won't lie to you like I think that's super interesting like that's yeah, wild it's wild like that our anniversary or whatever you want to call it is like that day you know what I mean? it's crazy it's very crazy and like you know that's there between us it's like we don't talk about it but like it's there and that's I it's an it's an interesting thing but like I told you mostly we talk about compost yeah but on some level you have brought this moment forward and, and, and maybe yeah. maybe what you're saying about the the privilege stuff is like it's actually in no way surprising that you would hold on to that moment yeah because that moment because I value it yeah and it it is some way of of making sure that moment stays close, that your son stays close. I suppose. I mean, I'm sure on some level. I, I can't explain it. It's like, you know, mostly I just think like, John's a real pleasure to be around. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he really is. Like, and he's weird. He's like, you don't meet that guy 
It's like he's a real one-off. I mean, not maybe there, but here. It's like when I say, like, I have nothing compared to. I don't know, you know, if we had met at, like, some party, if whatever. There's no party where you'd meet that dude. Right. Like, no party I've ever been to. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, he he different. So you're going to write about death now? That's the plan? Yeah. I mean, we'll see. Like, we'll see if my boss is on board with that, you know? I, I really want to write that dead people compost story, but it's not approved. I don't know whether or not David's going to be into it. I, I'm going to go talk to him about it tomorrow. I'm super into it. Why do you think you're so interested in death? I mean, it's endlessly interesting. It's the great, it's the great beyond. It's yeah, the great know, mystery. But like, why now? Why like what? Why now? Where, I mean, where do you go from death? Nobody knows. <laughs> I mean, journalistically. No, I don't know. I'm just into it. I'm just into death. I am. I just think it's fascinating, and I, I'm particularly interested in the in corpses. Like, I think it's a really weird, sad thing. That like, like when I think about my mom, for example, like when my mom dies, like it, it would make me really sad to just like hand her over to like somebody I'd never met before who deals with dead bodies. It's like she she'll be she's my kin. She's my dead. I want to wash her body. You know what I mean? Like I, that should be my responsibility. I'm her kin. Have you talked about that with your mom at all? No, but she'd definitely be into it. She's definitely my target market on this. Like she would definitely have the same ideas about it. My father on the other hand has has a very different feeling about all this. He's very freaked out by death. He's very, very freaked out by death. Are you? No. And neither is my mom. Have you ever been? Yes. Yes. It's just not like scary to you anymore? I mean, I'm not psyched. I'm not like. No, I mean, it's, I'm not asking like, are you rooting for death? I'm just asking whether. I'm rooting against death, but I'm not afraid of it like I was. It doesn't, it doesn't scare me that much. That makes sense for why you'd want to start writing about it then. Yeah. Now I'm interested. And I'm interested in, like I say, I'm interested in corpses. I'm interested in like our fear, our revolt. I'm interested in the way as a culture we don't admit we're going to die and we don't incorporate death into life when it's like it's the one given. Like that's funny to me. So you're going to go pitch this to Remnick tomorrow? Yes. Do I need a little work? <laughs> no, I, I mean, like, how different is what you're saying to me than, like, w how you'll pitch it to him tomorrow? It's difficult to explain. I just know him. Like, I know. How do you pitch Remnick? That's what I'm asking. You have to make it sound fun. Well, like, I, mean, I can't go to David. Super fun topic. I can't go to David and be like, I'm just interested in, like, corpses and, like, I'm going to have to sound a little less dreamcatchery <laughs> and, like, a little more fun. Can you do, like, uh, an impression of you pitching this to David Remnick tomorrow? I think that would be interesting to our listeners. Well, yeah. I'm going to be like, there's this project in Seattle called the Urban Death Project where they're going to compost dead people. And he's going to be like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what he might say to that. It depends if he's in a good mood. First, before I pitch it, I'm going to go and sort of loiter around his office <laughs> and try to hear him on the phone. I'm not kidding. No, no, I will do this. And try to hear if he's on the phone and like just try to assess if he's in a good mood or a bad mood. And if he's in a bad mood, what do you do? Come back the next day. <laughs> really? Sometimes, yeah. Unless it's like a really good story, in which case I can improve his mood with it. But this one feels like borderline to you? Very much so. Why? Because I'm into it, but he might be like, compost and dead people, who cares? Like, I can see a case for who cares. Maybe he's scared of his own death. I just think he's scared of the magazine being grim and boring, and he yeah. wants me to write things that are fun. So, you're, so in this pitch, Mario, you walk in and you say there's this thing going on in Seattle. 
I'm just going to be like, Soylent Green is people and so is compost. And one day I'm going to spread dead people on my garden and hope there's not a little thumbkin in there. I'm just going to try to amuse him and we'll see if I can get him into it. How often do you pitch things that, that don't go? Not that often because I wouldn't take something to him that I thought just didn't make sense for the New Yorker. Like I can sort of see this. Can't you sort of see this story in the New Yorker? Yeah, totally. I think it'd be good. Yeah. So I wouldn't yeah. bother. I feel like you, you'll need to go find like the historical precedents though. Hundy P. That yeah. is what I should do. You can't just be the like, there's a startup in Seattle with a crazy idea. I'm glad you said that because I had forgotten about that whole thing. And you're absolutely right. I have to think about like, what have we done with our dead through yeah. the ages? We actually, yeah. If, if Like the whole history of what we've done because someone, some, someone somewhere composted. Thank God we had this conversation. <laughs> I No, I forgot that. And it's true. I think I'm out of questions. Great. I'm out of answers. Is there anything else I should ask you? Max, get out of here. It's a real question. No. What the hell else would you ask me? No, we talked about everything. I actually do have one more question. I totally forgot. What, Max? It's a corny last question, but I didn't actually mean it to be the last question. All right, fine. Make it good. What is it? <sighs> ah, fuck. This is, you're, not, you're not gonna like this. Go one. ahead. What? Your marriage ended very like abruptly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not entirely true. I it ended. Uh, <laughs> there was issues going on for a long time, alcoholism and infidelity. But the actual end, it feels like in the book at least, happens pretty quickly. Like. You go, except that that wasn't really the end. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like tech. Like we stayed connected and sort of hashing things out for a long time. Out. I mean, we're still connected. We're still. But that was like, I guess the way you write about it is like you went to a meeting. She was in rehab. You went to a meeting and you were like, "Yeah, this isn't going to happen." It was just more like, I was just like, I can't take this right now. Right. Like I cannot deal with two recoveries at once. Like, I need to recover from what just happened to me. I cannot be thinking about you recovering from your addiction. I, I just I just couldn't do it. My question is how you feel about that moment now. I was incredibly sad. I mean, I feel very sad about the end of that marriage. Very sad. I yeah. love her a lot still. Do you have regrets about it? I regret that I had an affair, yeah, 100%. Worst thing I ever did, stupidest thing I ever did. Only thing I regret in life, actually. Like the only thing I really cannot justify where I'm like, that was not the way you treat people. That's not how you treat someone you love. But do you think that it, it would have ended had you not cheated? I don't believe in would this, would that. There's no everything happens for a reason. Everything happens and then you just fucking deal. <laughs> that's a that's a fool's errand. Would I be, you know, I mean, we could play that game with everything. It That time only moves in one direction. That's a bad game. You shouldn't play that game. You'll break your own heart. Is that part of what you figured out? Yes. That's what I'm talking about when I say that on the page, analyzing and analyzing and coming up with cases is a good thing to do. If I'm going to write about composting dead people, I'm going to analyze it. And da, 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 da. Doing that with your past and should I have done this and should I, if only this, if only that, no point. No point. Nothing good to be gained from that. I, I, which is not to say you don't want to learn lessons. Like, I learned something, which is that I don't want to live that way. Like I say in the book, it's sin and punishment all in one. And it really is, I think. Like, doing something that rips you up or you feel awful about yourself, that's no way to live. I don't, I never want to put myself or my loved ones in a position like that again. But going back over it and if this, then this, if only this, then this, 
Uh uh. Homie, don't play that. Okay, now we can. Great. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Courtney Harrell. Hey, Courtney Harrell. Good job. Our sponsors were MailChimp, Viacom, Kindle, and To You, the ed tech company that has put out a new podcast called The Front Row that's all about what it is going to take to solve the problems of the future. Go to toyou.com slash longform. That is the number two and the letter U dot com slash longform to check it out. Thanks to them. And thanks most of all, of course, to Ariel Levy. Her memoir is called The Rules Do Not Apply. And she is, uh, she's the best. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.